Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. It's lovely to have you here. We have a very interesting guest today who has got a wealth of information about the folklore of Scotland and about some interesting views on modern takes on witches and witchcraft. So I'm really looking forward to that chat later on. But before we get to that, Claire, I was just wondering, just off the top of my head, has there been any news this week that you'd like to talk about? Also just off the top of my head and right back at you, I think we should talk about the fact that the Scottish Parliament considered our petition this week, Zoe. Now, that is big news. That's capital letters news. That is big news exclusive scoop. This week, the petitions department considered our petition, and I'm absolutely delighted to say that they didn't simply refuse it, as they did a lot of other petitions that I saw. I was quite anxious about it when ours came up. But in fact, every single politician on the committee said that they thought something should be done. They didn't see it in terms like that, but they all indicated that they thought what had happened had been terrible and that they were interested in finding out more about it. So what has happened now is that they've asked us to respond to a request for information from them. So Zoe, you and I will sit down and work out our response to them. And they've also asked the Scottish government for a response as well. And what they're asking for in particular is there are three different ways really we could try going about getting a pardon. The first, as they think it is, is sending it to the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission. That's a body in Scotland that's an independent body which is set up to consider miscarriages of justice and sending cases back to court. Now, this isn't something that we can use in this case, although the committee were considering it and seeing whether or not we could pick a test case and use that to the commission, send the commission a case of a woman, they would consider it, send it to court, and it would be effectively, if the court quashed that conviction, it would be a symbolic quashing of the convictions of women in Scotland. The difficulty with that is that the SCCRC can only take an application from somebody having a, quotes unquote, legitimate interest. Now, I actually went to court about that question of who has a legitimate interest in my job. I did that in respect of another case. And what the court said is that the way that they would interpret that is very, very restrictively. And really, they would only look at the family members of the person who had been convicted or the person themselves. They wouldn't look at people more broadly seeing they had a legitimate interest in having a conviction. I remember us talking about that right back at the beginning of the podcast and about different ways in which we could look at getting pardons and apologies. I remember you saying that back then that because we are not family, 
that uh-huh. and it was so long ago it's not even like it was a grandparent that you'd be looking at we'd be looking at so so many generations back that that wasn't possible so where does where does that leave us then so where that leaves us is legislation and we have a great example of legislation already in place where the people convicted of homosexual offences as they were at the time many years ago were granted a pardon it was a collective pardon it was a posthumous pardon i.e. it worked for everybody who was convicted of those offences and also those that were dead and therefore the legislative route is really what we want to go down. The other route that the committee considered was a pardon from the Queen and we're not asking for the prerogative of mercy from the Queen. We are talking about the Scottish state having done this, having prosecuted and that is who should be apologising. So we are wanting a legislative change and we are going to write to the Scottish Parliament, write to the committee, explaining to them why we want that. And we've got another current great example at the moment, Zoe, that they're also considering giving pardon to people who were convicted of offences in respect of the minor strike. So we've got a good current example that Parliament are going to consider, hopefully, in respect of people that were convicted of those offences. And that will allow us to provide some good examples to the committee to show them how this can be done. That's great. And we've said from the beginning, we think that basically it's a no brainer. It's not something that would cost any money, particularly. It's not something that would be a great deal of sort of rigorous philosophical thought about it. It's really pretty straightforward. So hopefully the people that go on to consider this next point will see it in that way and we'll be able to move forward with it positively. That's great. Thanks very much, Claire. I think that's enough news. That's quite big news. So maybe what we could do here is we could talk as we do every week, which really is so vitally important to what we do with the podcast, about a group of people that were accused and killed as witches. So this week, Claire, you've looked at one particular place, haven't you? Yes, what I did was, and always we give out a shout to the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft that we look at. And I was looking at the interactive map the University of Edinburgh have done and I just saw that in the very northeast of Scotland there was just a little village but in that little village over a period of time there had been four different witchcraft accusations and unfortunately very little is known about three of them in fact all four of them there's just a little more information on the last person but they're equally as important even though we don't know their stories so I thought I would just tell you the names of these women who were convicted at different times. So the first woman I want to tell you about is a woman called Marion McBeath. She is from a small area called Canis Bay. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Anyone from the northeast, please do get in contact. And Marion McBeath was accused of being a witch in 1652. All we know about her was that she was tried in July 1652 and we have no other information on her at all, other than her parish was Keithness. And sadly, the same of Janet Grote. We only know that in 1655 she was accused of being a witch. We know that her parish was Canisbee. We don't know anything more than that. The third woman, Margaret Watson, we know that in 1659 there was an investigation carried out on her in relation to being a witch. And we know that that the culmination of that appears to have been a trial on the 9th of July, 1659, but we don't know any more. And lastly, Agnes Armstrong. We have just a little bit more on Agnes. She was originally from Dunfries, 
but somehow ended up in Canisby. One of the reasons that there's a little more information about her, Zoe, is that it says in he was registered on a fugitive role. Not heard of that before. No, a fugitive role. I have never heard of that. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, is that like they keep a list of people that have run away? Yeah, I wonder if she left Dumfries after accusations and then hit the road and went as far north as she possibly could and that's where she ended up. Yeah, the trouble is that around this time, women by themselves wouldn't move around so much. So if a new woman came to town and just turned up in a place, there'd be questions as to why they'd arrived and no doubt chat would start after that time about Mm -hmm. why they'd arrived, what their backstory was. I mean, gossip was the only form of entertainment at that time. Yeah. You know, you can imagine how rife it would be if a woman turned up in town alone. So sadly for poor Agnes Armstrong, when she left in Freese and turned up in Canisby, she was accused of witchcraft and she was investigated and had a trial on the 24th of September, 1679. And sadly, we know nothing more about it other than that. So these four women were accused of witchcraft. They were probably tortured, perhaps by not allowing them to sleep. They were probably asked questions and they were put under pressure to confess. We don't know whether they did or not and we don't know the outcome. But what we do know about them is that they were women and not witches. Our guest this week is Jennifer White. We first met her online where we saw her making some really astute comments on different forums and social media. She is a Scottish woman living in Japan with a lifelong interest in history and folklore. She incorporates Scottish folk practices into her life there in Japan where possible. So, for example, seasonal things like observing the Gaelic quarter days. But being out with Scotland does limit things a bit for her given how tied to the land much of Scotland's folklore is. Her personal beliefs and practices are a mix of animism, something prevalent in Japan traditionally too, and some aspects of Christianity. Jennifer feels strongly that educating ourselves on the facts is a very important part of remembering and seeking justice for all those falsely accused during the Scottish wit trials. It can also help us to avoid unwittingly appropriating from marginalised cultures that aren't open to us in terms of modern spirituality and practice. Jennifer's also recently developed a new website, which is the Adder's Den, which we'll put links up to. She's also using that on Facebook too, and it's a really invaluable resource for lots of different things. It's sort of endlessly interesting, actually. So she's fantastic, Jennifer. So without any further ado, let's welcome Jennifer White to the show. I'm really, really pleased today to have our guest on. We first came across her on Facebook and thought that she had lots of really interesting, accurate things to say. So we are very excitingly talking to our guest all the way from Japan today. I mean, we're not in Japan. No, sadly. Sadly, we are still in Scotland. I mean, lovely place and all that, but come on, we need to get going. Anyway, that's the side. So I would like to welcome to the podcast today, Jennifer White. Hi, Jennifer. Hi Zoe, hi Claire. I'm really excited to be here. I've been a long time listener of the podcast, so yeah, when you got in contact over Facebook, that was actually really exciting for me too. Oh, that's great. 
Well, maybe yeah. the first thing we could do is if could you tell the listeners really what your background is and why we've asked you in particular onto the podcast today? Well, in terms of meeting over Facebook, first of all, I'm involved in a group called Scottish Cunning Ways. Um, I'm just one of the admin on it rather than the creator. Um, the creator is Ash, Ash Williams Mills. And this group is all about kind of Scottish folklore, Scottish folk magic, Scottish folk traditions. And that also does cross over into witchcraft and witchcraft beliefs, what they are traditionally. So it's kind of solely based on history, historical evidence, folkloric evidence, that kind of thing. So it's a bit different from, say, your general kind of witchy kind of groups, if you know what I mean. So in terms of that, and also just personally, um, I'm from Paisley in Scotland, and we have quite a famous witch trial, sadly, 1697 Barrigan witches, and we have a couple of memorials to them. So growing up in Paisley, you're kind of aware of the witch trials. You might not know all the details, though. I think there's still a lot of misconceptions and things like that floating around. But you are kind of aware that they happened, at least. So that definitely has something that's led to my interest in it as well. Is it something then definitely sort of folklore and so on that you've had an interest in from childhood? Or did anything in particular happen to sort of turn you on to this? I think it's something I've always really had an interest in, particularly the more kind of ghost story or horror, darker folklore, I suppose. Ever since I've been a child, I've been fascinated by ghost stories or stories about banshees or like those kind of traditional fairy stories or even witches and things like that, I suppose. So yeah, I don't really remember anything particular happening. I think it's just been an interest that's kind of grown over the course of my life. And you find yourself now being admin on this group. What is it really about the witches, I suppose the witches of Scotland, what brought you to an interest rather than in the folk side of things to the actual stories of the women? For me, I think it was all kind of my own learning journey, if this makes sense, because I obviously also had my own misconceptions or my own things that I didn't realise, you know, I used to believe that, oh, maybe they were pagan or, oh, maybe they were all healers and midwives or, do you know what I mean? Like, I used to also kind of think that that was the case and it wasn't till I really started looking into the actual folklore and things like that I was kind of like wait a minute that's not actually matching up and just the more I read the more I looked into it I did get involved in that group just as a normal member and I learned a lot there and I learned a lot from various other sites and things like that as well and it was just like a kind of gradual thing like oh wait a minute this isn't what I thought it was this is quite different so that just made me want to look into it more and more. I take it like we've spoken about as well before you never get any of this sort of thing in history no? No absolutely not Um, I've always loved history I took history in school I think up to higher and it's usually like World War One and Russia and things like that not that that's not important but um, in terms of like Scottish history and things like that the witch trials was definitely not something that came up or even just religion or the Reformation or any of the sort of things that kind of feed into that. Interesting that you grew up in Paisley. And if I was a teacher in Paisley, I'd be thinking, oh, this is a really great local learning angle. You know, we can take the kids to look at things and it's such an important focus. Maybe it's different in Paisley now, though. Yeah, it might be changing now. I think um, there has been a lot more awareness and that kind of Renfrewshire witch hunt. 
charity than the women are. You know, that organisation, I think they've been trying to do more things. They're very strong and they're really organised and they get a lot of interest. So I would hope now things are a bit different. If you're growing up in Paisley now, you'd have a more accurate sense of what happened in maybe Scotland's part in that history. Yeah, I'd really hope so. I mean, for me, it was just, you know, you've got the horseshoe kind of plaque and at Maxwellton Cross and the kind of crossroads and you just see like, oh, what's that thing on the road? And then people yeah. just kind of drive over it and it kind of bumps with the car and you're like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's just for the witches. What? Like you don't really, like it doesn't really, you know, I mean, always get explained. Really, that's really bonkers. Yeah, when you were a <laughs> boy, you would take the children to watch it. I was like... In the middle of it. Yeah. Not necessarily. All the naughty ones. Yeah. All the naughty ones. <laughs> you go right over to Memorial. <laughs> and the rest of us will go to Costa. That probably gives you quite a good insight into my teaching style. No. <laughs> Disclaimer, disclaimer. <laughs> not really, not really. We don't do trips anymore anyways. Just like, how do <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah. it, it is actually quite a dangerous place that that is cited for people to go. I mean, you kind of take your life in your hands trying yep. to go and see it or take a photograph of it. It's not the best. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult. Um, there is actually another um, memorial nearby on where the actual Gallo Green was so where they were actually executed. I think the plaque is where the remains were put at the crossroads after that. So in terms of the green bit, you can actually go, you can see that, it's safe, you know, you can take a picture of that. Is that the one that looks like a well at the back yeah. of some garden? It's it's like stones, it's like all the way round. Yeah, I've, I've yes. we've seen that before. In fact, one of our listeners who sends us quite a lot of photographs of things, I think, sent us pictures of that. We'll maybe use those pictures. We'll ask her if we can use those pictures and put those up to to show people what the, the one which is taken in danger of your life is and the other one that you can go and visit. All right. You've also been we're working in, in like folklore and studying in folklore. How big a crossover is there between what people believe in folklore stories and what people believe, like not necessarily true, about witches? Mm. Is, there, is there a big crossover? Is it all the same thing? I would say not all the same thing. In terms of maybe if we break it down a bit and just first of all talking maybe about the word witch, because I think that word has changed so much over the course of the centuries. So nowadays, you know, it's a kind of reclaimed word, we call it. It can be quite a positive word, quite a big kind of umbrella term that covers maybe almost any kind of magical type practising or sometimes even kind of modern paganism as well. Like some people have that kind of image, like witch is a pagan or that kind of thing as well. Whereas in the past, um, traditionally through traditional folklore and things like that, and um, that was not the case. The word witch, particularly in Scotland, but in most places as well, it had quite a narrow, specific definition. At first, it was almost like an evil spirit type thing, but later on, it was a person and they did practice some kind of magic, but it was always kind of harmful magic, magic that would harm people in the community. So it's a person that's kind of not working together for the community because community was a lot more important. You know, in the past, life was a lot harder. You depended on other people to have to survive. So community was very, very, very important. And so anyone who wasn't kind of doing their bit, anyone that was selfish or that kind of thing, you know, that's going to raise suspicion anyway. So then a kind of magical practitioner who was very selfish or doing bad things to kind of harm their community, 
And then, of course, comes in the devil stuff and thinking that maybe they're working with the devil and things like that as well comes into it too. So it definitely wasn't like any kind of magical practitioner, you know, healers, folk magic practitioners, anyone like that. They would not have been called a witch by their community and they certainly wouldn't have thought of themselves as a witch. We found that very, very interesting dividing line between what were called charmers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who would sell you charms or would sell you a love potion or something yep. like that, which yep. I don't know if my understanding is right, but they were not divining their power from the devil. But what marked out a witch was that a witch was divining her power from the devil. She was the handmaid of the devil and therefore did bad things. Whereas charmers would help you, you know, can, can you do something to help me get a good crop? Can I do a charm for that? And so there's this really, really strange line that people who were charmers managed to continue to do their work to a degree. But then if someone said, no, you're in league with the devil, you would be seen as a witch. But essentially, both of them might be doing the same sort of things. Or, of course, in, in terms of witches, some women might not have been doing any charming at all. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're talking about here, the difference between charmers and witches? Yes. Um, so basically, just to kind of come back to community and community being important. And I would say that whatever people are doing, you know, in their magical practice in terms of that, if it's helping the community, it's helping people in the community, it's healing people, you know, it's protecting the community against bad or evil influences, whatever it is, then that sort of person would not be considered a witch. They would not be considered someone who would be in league with the devil. So if you're someone that's useful to your community, that's helpful to your community, then what you're doing would not fall under witchcraft. And I would maybe also point out just now, like, you know, another modern thing with magic, people talk about, say, like, this is, you know, good or white magic. This is bad black magic. So these are the tools for this. These are the tools for that. And they're always like neatly divided. Yeah. That's also maybe not the best way of thinking about the past either necessarily. Um, it's more about the reasons for doing things, I would say. If someone is doing something to serve their community, to be of use to their community, there might be various ways that they do it. But um, as long as they're serving their community, they would not have been considered a witch. They wouldn't have been considered evil by the common people. Is this during the time of the witchcraft trials? Is this pre-witchcraft trials? Is this for centuries beforehand? Is this the whole history of Scottish folklore and magic? It does go back, it does seem to go back um, a lot into history and it is something that you also see even in places like the Highlands and the Islands where the witchcraft trials really didn't take that much of a hold. There still is the idea of people who are doing magic and things like that for their community and there's also people who are not, people who are harming the community and kind of away, you know, to the outside of their community. They're not helping and they're not good people even if they didn't think the solution was to hunt them down or put them through a witch trial, um, they might just shun them. But that certainly is the kind of folk belief, the folk culture. Um, when it comes to the witch trials and the witch trials in Scotland, the elite or intellectual type people, especially the people with really kind of Calvinistic type of thinking, they started to try and bring in this idea that any you know, magical practitioner was in league with the devil. It didn't matter you know, if they're helping people or harming people, their argument was it was all coming from the devil. 
they're taking attention away from the church. That's where you should go to get help. So it's all evil. It's all bad. And what makes Scotland as well unusual is that that actually went into the law. So both people could be punished, you know, capital punishment, they could be executed regardless of whether they were doing harmful stuff or they were doing kind of healing stuff and that. So even although the kind of folk practitioners make up only a small percentage, we still do have records of them in the Scottish records because it was considered on the same level as a crime. The thing about it was, though, that this belief didn't really filter down into the common population. So you had these intellectuals and the king and everyone else trying to push this idea. And of course, the Kirk as well and the ministers and that sort of thing. But for ordinary everyday people, you just didn't see the number or the level of accusations that you would expect if they had really bought into this belief that it was all evil. Like most of the time, they just couldn't understand it. Like this person helps my community. How could they be in league with the devil? It just doesn't make any sense. And you can see why the church would be like, no, no, no. You we mm-hmm. want the monopoly on this. You come to us and we will show you the right way and God will keep you safe. And you shouldn't be going to third parties to try and find any kind of safety or security. We'll give you all that. I mean, it makes sense from the church's perspective yep. to try and say, oh, this is all the one thing and it's all bad. But you can also then see why the locals will be saying, well, you say that, but in fact... <laughs> I would quite like to, you know, have a spell to keep my sheep and goat safe or, you know, a love potion or or something of the likes. So you can definitely see why people would think, well, if there's no harm in it and it's not bad, why can't I just keep doing it? Exactly. And we even get cases like there's a case of um, Alexander Drummond and he was a kind of well-known kind of folk magic practitioner type person. And when the local minister kind of went after him to accuse him of this sort of stuff, his local community kind of rose up and protested it. They liked him. They didn't want you know anything to happen to them, though sadly they weren't successful. So he was from Ochterader, he got moved to Stirling and then he got moved to Edinburgh where he was sadly executed by being strangled and burned. But his community, even after he died, apparently they were still trying to like petition the king, say, no, he was a good Christian. You know, he appealed, you know, he did everything by the legal Christian, you know, means. So, you know, we can't understand why. I saw that because that was mm-hmm. right back then they tried to get that man a historical pardon. Historical in the sense that yeah. and after his death, they tried to get him a pardon. I hope we're more successful this time round, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, um, now um, hopefully the church and things like maybe slightly less powerful than what they were in those days. But yeah, I mean, it's just there, there are other probably examples of that as well. But that's the one that kind of comes to mind, like of a man that was quite well known, you know, for his healing and other sorts of charms and things like that. Um, and sadly getting accused by someone who wasn't really maybe part of the wider community or of someone who the wider community didn't have a problem with, it seems. Do you think that in Scotland we have lost some of our folk history because of the witchcraft trials, because people would have been scared to practice? Because I suppose from the history that you've told us, any form of involvement in these sorts of things is going to be slightly putting you in a danger zone that if you didn't practice them, you wouldn't need to be. That's true somewhat, but I think at at the same time, because in terms of the overall accusations, the ones involving these folk practice were such a kind of small percentage that even if you didn't, you know, do any sort of magic, 
you could still, especially if you're a woman, be, you know, at risk of being accused. Because usually, you know, a lot of the accused, especially you can even see it in the Paisley cases, you know, like Agnes Naismith, she was known as a kind of grumpy old widow that kind of went about and she would say stuff to people if she wasn't happy with them. And apparently some bad stuff happened to some people, you know, that she'd said stuff to. And then eventually after she'd spoken to Christian Shaw one day and a few days later, stuff started happening with Christian Shaw. And I think that's probably a more typical case than like a folk healer or a folk practitioner type case so it's not like there was no danger at all there definitely was maybe some level of danger and especially if you're catholic as well catholicism tended to maybe allow for a bit more of that sort of almost ritualistic i don't know if that's the right word but you know those kind of practices that it's not just the kind of plain pray to god you know or go to the church like there's stuff that you can actually do symbolic stuff and statues and and those yeah yeah. people would argue i suppose there's not an enormous amount of difference between the catholics idol and a puppet very similar sort of things i'm reading a book at the moment that's set then and the character's mother is a catholic but she's you know she's hiding it and the father was not a catholic but he's been given a little statue of saint bridget i think it is and he Uh hides it but it's it's the way it's described is i'm sure this is deliberate it's described as being like a small doll which i don't think would be that different i wonder whether this is foreshadowing that he's going to get accused of having a puppet i don't know i don't know what's going to happen but i think there's definitely a similarity there you know the sort of the you know i think ritual probably is the right word it might not i don't know if it's the right academically but to me it would be you know the idea Mm -hmm. that there's a routine for doing things and it seems on the surface and i'm sure i would you know catholic historians would say absolutely wasn't but on the surface to a lay person there seems to be a similarity there between the rituals and there's a particular way of doing things. There's not a huge chat about this when, when people talk about it in an informal Facebooky, Twittery sort of way. There's not a huge understanding, I think, of the fact that it was used often to attack Catholics or people yep. that suspected of being Catholic or sympathisers. Yeah, I think that's something that doesn't really come up very much. I think people are either, oh, they were all maybe pagan or oh they would all like maybe protestant christian the same as every like a kind of two ways and they don't really seem to maybe remember that there were actually still catholics around and especially at that time especially early on in the trials when the reformation had happened and you know that not everyone just happily converted to the new way of being christian some people would have held on to catholicism and But as far as, you know, the authorities were concerned, you know, even if Catholics didn't see what they were doing as kind of ritualistic or whatever else, the authorities would have wanted to stamp it out as well. So it has often also been said by academics and things like that, that it was kind of an attack on Catholics Mm -hmm. as well, the kind of witch trial period. It's a sensible, I mean, not very nice, but it's a sort of a logical way of routing out anybody that's standing against you. It's a really easy way to shut people down is, you know, you can't do this because we will kill you. I think it's fairly, <laughs> I'd imagine, to it's, get people to shut up about stuff you want to shut up about. Yeah, definitely. Worked? Yeah, it was. It worked. It was brutal and it yeah. shut down a lot of conversation. But throughout this period, then folk medicine and healing and charming, it subsisted quietly under the radar yeah. in a sense through this period of time because presumably the community still saw benefit in it and it continues on to this day. Would you consider yourself a modern day, uh, would you call yourself charmer or something? Are you yourself identifying that way? 
personally, I don't know if I'd call myself a charmer. Um, I've had a very large interest in folk practices, folk magic and things like that. At first, a few years ago, when I started looking into it in more detail, that was almost like purely academic, if that makes sense. I was looking into it and I was learning about it. Then in more recent years, I might have started adopting certain things, certain seasonal things or like that sort of thing into what I do. But I wouldn't necessarily call myself a charmer because I'm not really someone that goes out and advertises my services to um, <laughs> to do things like that. Not there's anything wrong with that. Um, there are people nowadays that still that do that sort of thing. But for me personally, it's more of quite a personal thing. Um, what I do is something I do in my personal life for maybe myself, for my home or for my family or something like that. And it's funny how some of these practices have bled into sort of just standard life of young people. I mean, I've got a teenager, my daughter's 16. She would no way describe herself as being a witch or as being a pagan, I don't think either. However, she has got a whole bunch of crystals. She does burn (laughs) sage. She manifests. We have these kind of idle conversations and I go, if I can find, like yesterday, I said, I'm looking for a jumpsuit. I'm really hoping I can find a jumpsuit. She went, I will you will find a jumpsuit and manifesting it. And I think it's really interesting that that's kind of bled through TikTok and Instagram into this whole thing. And I think that it has caused, which is no harm to it. I think it's really benign. And I think actually it can be a really lovely power for good and anything that makes young people and people generally feel more settled and happier and more positive. I'm, I'm absolutely all for that. But I do wonder if that has caused quite a lot of myths the obscure historical fact and I you know jokes aside I do think it's incredibly important that we understand what actually happened as opposed to a kind of a maybe a slightly rose-tinted gloss on some aspects of it so if there were any particular things that you would like to just clarify at this stage could you tell us what they might be? Yes, absolutely. I do agree with a lot of what you've said there. I think, especially now, there seems to be kind of waves where the more kind of modern witchcraft or paganism gets really popular amongst young people. And that's great. But as you say, um, sometimes there is quite a lot of confusion about the actual history and even the actual practices. Like people get confused about where things come from. Maybe they don't know the history. So like, oh yeah, that's Celtic. Then you look into it and you're like, well, actually that's Native American, so like it's not. (laughs) (laughs) So, in terms of both history and in both practices, I do think it's actually very important to try to get the kind of education out there. So, yep, in terms of the witch trials, it would be very important to be clear. I think that nobody in Scotland at that time who was being persecuted was being persecuted because they were a pagan. There was no pagan European witch cult thing going on. There's absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever, unfortunately. It was pushed quite a bit, you know, in the 1950s and so on, but it is not something that we do have any evidence for. So that's one kind of misconception people tend to think of, oh, it must have been pagans that were getting persecuted or, oh, I'm a pagan now, that's the same as what my ancestor who was killed for being a witch, that's what they must have believed Unfortunately, that's not um, the case. And I would like to say as well, when we're having conversations about these things, it is about the history. So like if someone says to you what you've said, oh, that's not quite right, or historically that was different, it's not meant as a personal attack. It's not meant as an attack on your beliefs or what you believe now, what you can call yourself or anything like that. 
it's just you know trying to clarify the history and understand what actually happened to these people especially because they did suffer they did die so yeah. I think it is important um, to figure out what happened what did they believe and for me that's quite a big part of seeking justice as well as trying to get a clearer picture you know for what actually happened and making education on that available to the public um, so I do think things like this podcast is actually really good because not everyone has access, you know, to academic journals or can be buying, you know, textbooks or loads of things like that. So this kind of information, it's not always as accessible to the public. So I do think it's important to have these conversations. And also, as I say, if you are a pagan now, if you do call yourself a witch now, that's great. That's that's fine. But when we're talking about different historical definitions and things like that, please don't take it as a personal attack. It's not, it's not at all. There just but isn't a historical connection and that's no. factual. That's the yeah. yeah, exactly. There's a fine line between being really interested in this period of time and being respectful and wanting to see justice happen and and to recognise it's something that genuinely happened and that we need to think about and talk about. I think it's different between that. And the sort of, you know, witchifying of the experience and the sort of, you know, if you kind of push that little sort of pointed hat tourist trail, then I think in some ways it sort of diminishes actually this extreme severity and the miscarriage of justice that occurred. We obviously will make a joke and we'll, we'll laugh about things in, at points during the podcast. But I think that it's very important that we keep coming back to the fact that this has been historically researched, it's being historically researched. There are documents that are there. People are doing really good hard work to find out the facts. So let's stick to the facts. And there's enough material to work with. You know, we don't need extra bits to kind of sort of semi-glamorise it in some ways. I just think it does those people that were charged and those people that's lives were ruined and those people that were executed. It does them an enormous disservice to rewrite the history that's there. So I think that's very important. Yeah, 100%. Completely agree. Completely feel the same. It is something I feel quite passionate about as well, because it can be quite frustrating online when you see like just all this <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And then you just try and say something politely and depending on maybe the type of group it is or the type of situation it is, you might get listened to or you might get jumped on by a lot of people yeah. um, that are not happy because it contradicts maybe what they've learned or something that's to do with their personal beliefs. And I know it's not maybe not easy, you know, if you've got whatever your spirituality is and that's unfortunately involved some kind of misinformation and then suddenly you're confronted with, oh, maybe that's not actually right. You know, it's not always an easy thing to take on board. But as I say, if people would maybe when that happens, just take a minute to kind of yeah. just read it and just, you know, take it, it in. Do you, it doesn't mm. alter what people can do now and what people can believe now and mm. what their structure is. Absolutely, you know, like we're religious freedom and spiritual freedom is, is enormously mm -hmm. important whether you want to have that you don't want to have that but it doesn't it doesn't change the past like the past happened yeah the that's past yeah yeah that's exactly what it is I do think people do tend to you know this is my identity and they kind of maybe internalize everything and everything to do with it so then if you do point out something's not quite right historically or whatever they do sometimes get a bit upset about it or they don't really want to learn about it. But, you know, as you say, it, it's important. It's part of bringing justice. It's part of remembering people properly because if it's not the actual facts, then you're not really remembering them, I don't think, because you're just making something up, basically. Yeah. It's fiction, uh, otherwise, which mm -hmm. is fine. But, it, but it's not <laughs> Just for something else, yeah, maybe not for... <laughs> I think you're on the head, Jennifer, that what it is, is that it's because it's so 
completely involved with people's identity, that it's so central to them, that it's not just a wee passing fact that might not bother them. It's a direct challenge. But what I think is very interesting about it is the fact that we as humans do like to tether ourselves in the past. We do like to have a reach backwards, whether or not it's our ancestors, if you're lucky enough to have records for ancestors. Sadly, I don't. Or people want to find a point in history and attach themselves to it. And I think it's quite a natural human aspect. It's just that, unfortunately, attaching yourself to the women and men that were killed as witches with a modern identity that doesn't have anything to do with them is not accurate. Yeah, definitely. I think that's it's definitely the case. It is unfortunately just not accurate. I do understand why as well. As you say, it's a very human thing, I think, to try and reach back into the past. And especially in terms of religion, you know, if you're not into Christianity or whatever and you're looking for an alternative, then because Christianity has been in Scotland for such a long time, we unfortunately don't have, you know, like this continuing line of practice from pre-Christian times. So we're really relying on archaeology mostly and maybe the odd kind of written records that were written down by Christian monks. So not even, you know, this was after, but they're just, you know, recording stuff about that. So we're just trying to piece together things like that if you are trying to reconstruct it. So there's no easy way. Like you can't unfortunately just, you know, Google or go on TikTok and be like, oh, this was what our ancestors believed. This is, you know, just do this and you can be exactly like them. I was actually thinking about how history will now be because we deal with history at the moment. Like here are some artifacts, here are some old books, here's some scratchy writing, here is a an object. But in the future, our history will be all digital and people will be able to see exactly what we're saying, exactly what we're doing. Maybe hundreds of years in the future, someone will be listening to this podcast. Hi, guys. Um, <laughs> looking at the history that they'll have, they will be lost because we have too much information of all different <laughs> types, of all people saying different things. And that. I started thinking, oh, it's great. History will be really, really clear and straightforward in the future. And then I was thinking, no, it won't. It's already an avalanche of misinformation. What will it be like in the future? Just some thoughts in my head that pass by every day. <laughs> we like to see the traffic, the mental traffic. <laughs> Sometimes there's like road jams. <laughs> ah, so it's just a, it, to be expected in a metropolitan area, Claire. That's what's happening. <laughs> we don't have too much long left now. And I want to ask one <laughs> Um, Jennifer which is you we've mentioned already you're based in Japan I'm curious Japan obviously has a completely different spiritual background to, to what we have here is there still a witch concept or are witches a thing in Japan in Japanese culture I would say yes um, I can't talk in too much detail about it but yet there is that kind of concept as far as I can see there's a lot of folk traditions a lot of things you can do for healing protecting yourself things like that. And there's the concept as well. Obviously, it's still a very collectivist society, even now. So community is very important. So the concept of a witch would very much be someone who hurts people, someone who's at the edge, or maybe somewhere out with the community, sometimes an older woman, um, which we see also um, in Scotland as well, who's maybe hurting people or doing terrible things to kids or like not a nice thing so it's not like an umbrella term anyway I wouldn't say I'm not aware of any sort of trials or anything like that particularly at least not on mainland Japan but there definitely is a concept of magic and what 
you know, what that does for community, if it's helpful, if it's harmful, different kinds of magical practice and things like that. Is it fashionable to be into witches in the same way as it is in Britain, say, in America? What I've maybe seen, again, I'm not the authority on this, but what I've seen probably more recently is almost like a kind of leaking in of Western ideas of witchcraft nowadays. So things like horoscopes or like the Western type image of a witch and things like that has sometimes kind of started to become a little bit more fashionable in Japan, reading cards or like, you know, those kind of things. I'm not entirely sure how popular it is within youth culture but now like I'm actually an English teacher I'm going to teach in English schools and we do like Halloween lessons and stuff like that the kind of image of a witch is like they can recognize like that westernized you know stereotype with the pointy hat yeah Uh the young kids though for them it's kind of gone slightly further into the I think it's probably a combination with anime and that the witch is like a kind of cute young girl. So sometimes when you do the Halloween stuff and it's meant to be like an ugly old witch, they can't understand why we're doing that. Um, they're like, you know, they think a witch is like cute or pretty or that kind of thing. It's that kind of image that they have now. It's, it's funny, I would say. A clash of different types of cultures make different ideas because as, as we know, our idea of a witch only came from cartoonists in the... 18th, 19th century, making fun of their political opponents. Mm. Just the most visually pleasing parts of the bits that we had about witches, the cartoonists drew. Because when you think of a witch in Scotland, you do always think of an old woman. You never think of a young woman, even though we know that the people that were killed were young and old. But our visual identity of a generic witch, pointy hat, just in Scotland, you wouldn't think of that as a young person, would you? Yeah, definitely not. And the stereotypes that we have is usually a kind of older woman or sometimes with like kind of weird green skin or like kind of, you know, like stuff like that, which obviously is not connected to reality um, at all. But that is the kind of strange kind of Halloween witch type image that we do have sometimes. Well, Jennifer, it's been really great to have you on. It's really nice to make a connection with you in the sort of real world. It's still not quite (laughs) real world, but it's a step on from Facebook. But it's been really great to have you on. We'll put links up to explain a wee bit more about who Jennifer is. And also if they want to go and have a look at the group that she mentioned on Facebook, which has got lots of amazing and fascinating facts. You know, and I think we just keep coming back to that again, that it's all about historical research and accuracy, because as we said, there's enough to work with. We don't have to make stuff up for it to be incredibly fascinating. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today all the way from Japan. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really exciting to come on. It's been really nice to talk to you both as well. Oh, it's lovely. We also really appreciate the myth-busting work that you do. So (laughs) we're really glad that you're doing it. So keep up the good work. Yes. Thank you. You too. Keep up the good work. I'm excited to listen to your next (laughs) podcast when it comes out. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. I'm sure you will have found it as interesting as we did. Please do keep up the pressure on your MSPs and anybody you think would be useful for making the petition a success. And of course, as ever, do reach out to us, as the Americans say, on our socials, as young people say, such as... Oh, Claire, what is it? Damn, I've forgotten the news. 
What's the news? I TikToked. Oh, yes. Claire, because <laughs> I mention this every week with horror. And Claire, you have you have made that nightmare come true. So you've started TikToking now, haven't you? I have talked. I have ticked. I have TikToked. Up in Orkney, I made a TikTok about the memorial up there. So, yeah, it's about 600 views. So, thumbs up. Fantastic. (laughs) Very good. So, we're now on and active, we can say, on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Yes. And YouTube. YouTube and Instagram. And Instagram, yeah, because I don't use Instagram, so I always forget about that one. So, I think that's... That's the five big ones. The five famous five. Ones. Famous five. So, you know, as ever, do get in touch with us. It tends to be a good place to chat to us is on Twitter. Our Facebook is just a page, but you can message us on there so we can talk to you on there, but not on our sort of like actual front-facing Facebook side of things. But please do get in touch. We are always happy to hear from people. Well, most people. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.